Apologies. Oh my gosh. You're listening to Aw Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We provide an authentic Minnesota perspective, so authentic we even write our recaps in our house shoes about the show Fargo, named after a town in North Dakota. I'm Tracy Mumford. I'm a producer for NPR News. I'm Jay Gabler from The Current, and we have a great episode coming up, wouldn't you say, Tracy? That's true. We scored an interview with Rachel Tenner. She is the casting director of Fargo. She cast all three seasons. I don't think that there is a misstep in Fargo so far. I love everybody's performances. I think everybody achieves exactly what I hoped they would, if not more. And she lets us know um, who is the one person who got away, who she would have loved to cast, but it didn't work. Okay, Jay, are you a bird or a duck or you more of like a cat? I don't know. I always kind of identified with the dog. Which there isn't a dog in this story, but I feel like if I was going to be an animal, I was going to be a dog, despite the fact that I'm not really a dog person. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Last night's episode of Fargo clearly has us asking ourselves some deep and probing questions here, which is, what character in Peter and the Wolf would you be? The first voice we heard last night was a very familiar voice. If it's been stuck in your head since then and you haven't quite figured it out, that was one Billy Bob Thornton coming back for a triumphant return to Fargo. Lauren Malvo. And we get another Lauren Malvo uh, reminder in the opening sequence when Billy Bob Thornton is narrating the intro to Peter and the Wolf and telling us which characters in this season of Fargo will correspond to the characters and instruments from Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. Psy who is the grandfather, represented by a bassoon, is playing with a little toy parking lot because, of course, Cy has a toy parking lot, but not just any toy parking lot. Right. So the parking lot model that Cy is looming over is actually a reconstruction from season one of the string of buildings where Lauren Malvo goes on that massive massacre. This is the one when Key and Peel are playing the FBI agents and they're sitting right outside and they miss the entire thing. That stretch of buildings and the parking lot outside it is represented in size little model world. So the parking lot king of Minnesota perhaps uh, has part of his empire in North Dakota, in North Dakota. as well, or has um, expanded to include North Dakota. That's right. So this episode, obviously heavily Peter and the Wolf themed. Very interesting choice. If you haven't uh, gone and listened to Peter and the Wolf anytime recently, basically things don't end well for the duck, which is Ray. So I thought this was interesting, right? If I had to pick a doomed character... I think I would have gone with Emmett at the start of the season. But if we're going, if we can take the Peter and the Wolf connections literally, then Ray has some extreme trouble in his future. Definitely bodes ill for Ray. And the parallels are fantastic. Definitely, like Trace says, worth re listening to Peter and the Wolf after you see this episode because it's great. So in Peter and the Wolf, there's sort of a, an opening spat between the bird and the duck who argue about flying versus swimming. And so this is Emmett and Ray. The cat is Nikki, sort Obviously, of like, yeah, yeah kind, of, kind of wants to snip at the bird, doesn't quite, you know, succeed. Um, but this little conflict is just kind of the preamble to the main conflict in Peter and the Wolf, which is, of course, between Peter and the Wolf. The Wolf and Fargo being... VM Varga. And Peter being... Gloria Burgle. I'm just going to throw something in there for Harry Potter nerds out there. David Thewlis, who plays VM Varga, played Remus Lupin in Harry Potter, who was a werewolf. Spoiler alert. So good. And now he's the Wolf in Fargo. I don't think this is on purpose, but it was a little bit of Potter nerd delight for me last night. 
Um, I'm conv- I don't think the Peter and the Wolf parallels are all going to pan out literally, which kind of annoyed me. Or like, I'm like, if you're going to set up this huge theme, then why is Cy the grandfather of Peter, who's Gloria Burgle? Like, that connection doesn't quite work for me. And then, obviously, Mimo and Yuri are the hunters. But in Peter and the Wolf, the hunters actually end up turning on the wolf and working for Peter, which would be interesting if Yuri and Mimo were going to have a change of heart. Anyways, if you try and take this too literally, it will kind of make your head hurt. Yeah, I did. the whole thing was worth it. The whole conceit was worth it, I would say, if only to hear that beautiful bassoon during the iconic sigh scene. The duck is doomed in Peter and the Wolf, but doomed in kind of a macabre way the duck is actually eaten alive by the wolf so the last thing that you hear at the end of peter and the wolf is the mournful sound of the duck alive in the wolf's belly And all of this also continues the heavily Russian themes of this episode, or this whole season, really. There's a lot of Russia happening. There's a lot of Russia happening in the news, too. So Noah Hawley uh, had a little prescient moment here. So we kick off the episode. Ray is dressing up to impersonate Emmett. Obviously, we saw that coming a mile away. You called that so far away. (laughs) His wig both looks terrible and yet somehow better than his actual hair. So I don't, it's a toss up there. Um, and he goes to the bank to open Emmett's safe deposit box, which he really is hoping is stacked with money or jewels or the stamp. Yeah. At the bank, uh, he meets Millie from Bemidji, which I don't recognize her at all from season one where we were in Bemidji. I think this is just a callback and we're not missing anything here. Just another Bemidjiite. Ray decides that in order to get what he wants, in order to get into the box without his key, he's got to kind of be a jerk about it and got to throw his weight around. And it doesn't really matter because he doesn't have to live with the consequences. Right. And so while he is convincing this hapless sort of bank employee to break into Emmett's box for him, he also decides, what the heck? I'll take out $10,000. And you know what? One more dollar in quarters for the meter. Gotta have the quarters. And there's just a brief reference to the fact that withdrawing more than $10,000 at once from Emmett's account is going to trigger some kind of automatic investigation, which, of course, Ray assumes, you know, won't find anything. But he doesn't know what Emmett knows about VM Varga's new role in Stussy Lots. It's true. So this is the wrong time to mess with Emmett. Uh, He gets into the safe deposit box. They drill it open, and there is a lovely velvet bag that is embroidered with Laverne. Major shout out to season two with uh, half that chaos took place in the tiny town of Laverne, Minnesota. Um, this Laverne is slightly different in the bag are ashes, yeah. which uh, <laughs> Ray, so confused by what this dust could possibly be, actually decides to taste a little sample of it. And I guess I don't know how smart his tongue is if he can detect that these are in fact the ashes of a dog a literal dog so then we get this key scene of yuri and mimo leaving stussy lots limited and they're heading out they've got their whip and their briefcase which it seems like they very rarely go out without these and they head to that semi remember this is this mysterious semi parked in the lot that we've been wondering about what could be inside it it turns out vm varga lives in the semi-trailer, he, uh, he's got his whole life on the road with him. It's not a tiny house, per se, but it is a mobile house. 
And it's his, like, command station in the semi. So on trend. Because, you know, people are turning shipping containers into homes. It's, you know, very, very cool right now. It's a very chic choice. And we get this strange story from Yuri about Putin. Um, I watched this, like, three times, and I still... What is that story, Jay? Well, I feel like it's uh, it, he's he's praising Putin kind of as a hero for first ruling the schoolyard with his fists and then ruling the country with misinformation. That's right. And there are these Russian parallels to the T-shirt that Maurice LeFay was wearing when he was killed by the AC unit. We head to the autopsy. We see the Russia for Lovers shirt that got split open. We see his head, which also got split open. And we see Gloria Burgle starting to put things together here. Yeah. She uh, takes a look at poor Maurice. She finds the phone book page that he ripped out. And she goes to her boss, who doesn't think she has a case here. It's interesting to have her boss be like spouting the, his war stories. Again, we had a lot of war stories in season two. This is a very different take on war stories here. It's kind of the misapplication of this war mindset. And I don't know how long Sheriff Damick is really going to live. I feel like the more like obnoxious and grating a character on Fargo, the more likely they are to bite it in the end. Or he could have sort of a I don't know, come to truth moment later in the season and turn out to be a hero. That could also be a very Fargo turn of events. Totally possible. Gloria refuses to give up the trail, even though he's uh, really insisting that she do that. And she heads to the St. Cloud parole office. Uh, She's going to track down who exactly was in charge of Maurice LeFay. She wants to know who killed Emmett Stussy, her stepfather. And what she finds there is is a new friend. Let's say that. She meets uh, Winnie Lopez in the bathroom. And Winnie... Winnie is an oversharer right from the start. Winnie yells out of the bathroom stall looking for a putter in her, right. which is, I don't think is actually a common Minnesota term for a tampon. I, don't, I feel like it's, Fargo's like angling for a Tampax sponsorship this season. A lot of talk about that. Um, and Winnie is willing to share many details about her life and her husband and their quest for a child. And this is another scene where Gloria can't make technology work. She still can't get through automatic doors. She can't make the automatic soap dispenser work. The faucet is ignoring her. All of these things. I won't say she's a ghost, even though I'm still secretly harboring that theory. But they've hit it so many times now. What What's happening here? You definitely do not need to be paying very close attention at this point to realize that motion detectors do not see Gloria Burgle. I don't know where this is going. I still don't think she's a ghost. I did think that this scene was a classic Fargo red herring initially, right? Where a very colorful character shows up, has a whole little monologue, you kind of get to know her, and then you never see her again, because that's the kind of thing Fargo does. But it turns out Winnie Lopez has a bigger role to play in this yeah, season. Yeah, don't underestimate Winnie Lopez. So... Ray talks to Gloria Burgle, but I mean, one, he's a terrible liar, but two, he does kind of manage to get her out of the office. He's saying, oh, yeah, Maurice LeFay, he smoked a lot of reefer. You know, I'm not surprised that this happened. I clearly had nothing to do with this. Um, The Stussy name is just a coincidence. She's not convinced, but Gloria does leave here. Yeah. And there's kind of a nice little Ray moment as Gloria's leaving and he knows that she's chief. She's like, no, not actually. And Ray says, they always find a way to screw you, don't they? They try. They try. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And maybe they'll succeed in Ray's case. Ray's day only gets worse, though, because he gets summoned into the office of his supervisor. And some little bird has informed them by sending pictures of Ray and Nikki to his boss. They have tattled on him for his definitely not legal relationship with his own parolee. Yeah. And so Ray's supervisor and the deputy director are really upset 
quote unquote, don't bang the cattle. They put in very crass terms that Ray is they doing the wrong thing here, but they give him a chance. They say, listen, if you say this is a one-time thing, I'm going to forsake Nikki, then we'll just give you a suspension. You won't lose your job. But Ray looks at those photos and he's touched and he says, no, I love this woman. I'm sticking with her. Yeah. They're like, if she's just manipulating you, here's your chance to get out of it. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He gives it all up for love. He gives it all up for Nikki Swango. He packs up his desk and he goes outside. And if there was any doubt at all that Cy was the one who sent those photos in, it ends here. Cy is standing outside waiting for him outside with his Hummer pointing. Yes. And you hear the, the bassoon for grandfather. I want a poster of this. Just Cy standing in front of the Hummer pointing. Gets in his car, still pointing out the window as he drives away. This was great. This was one of my favorite moments of last night. And has put a couple of uh, stussy boots on the Mustang just to add insult the to Corvette, injury. The Corvette. The Corvette, Oh, excuse please. me. The Corvette. But yeah, that Corvette is not going anywhere. I'm surprised it was still drivable after what Cy did do it last time or two times ago. But yeah, it's definitely stationary at this point. So after this, we see that Ray obviously disappointed, goes to the bar and drowns his sorrows, which means that he misses the meeting with, with Nikki and Bert Lurdsman. Which, you know, I so I get it, you know, that Ray is bummed, he just lost his job, it stinks, but he specifically lost his job for the reason that he wanted to stay with Nikki. So when you make that choice, how do you miss what you know is a huge meeting for Nikki and you? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if he was like even more demoralized after Sai's pointing session or he couldn't get to dinner because his car can't go anywhere. Maybe he's just at a nearby bar right by his old work and he can't get to the dinner because he doesn't have a car anymore. Or maybe he just forgot about the meeting because you know what Emmett says about Ray... It's kind of a loser. Kind of a loser. So what can she be? Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right. So, But he does miss their chance to hook up with this big bridge sponsor, which has been Nikki's plan this whole time. They were going to manage to hook Bert Lurdsman and really go big. But meanwhile, down in Eden Prairie, guess who's coming to dinner? V.M. Vargas. Not Sidney Poitier. <laughs> he is stalking through the snow outside Emmett's big house. He could not be more wolf-like at this point and knocks on the door. And so VM is there to uh, impress the relatives of the house. Uh, Emmett's wife is very taken with this courteous British man who's now, full of... I don't want to gossip here, but are you English? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I love that being British is a, is a topic of gossip. Yes. <laughs> this delights me to no end. But VM Varga also starts laying out information that there's no way Emmett can get out of this point, right? It's like if he's telling his wife and his whole family that they're partners and they've got these huge deals coming and they're it's going to turn them into international travelers and they're going to be huge. I mean, now Emmett would have to explain to his wife if he doesn't go along with it. So he's putting him in an impossible spot here. And shares one personal detail. When uh, Emmett's wife apologizes for the fact that dinner is in the kitchen instead of the dining room, VM says, you know, it's all right. I was a housemaid's boy. I, I'm used to eating in the kitchen. We have also learned something very important about Varga in this episode, which is that he binges and then purges. He has this huge appetite, this wolf-like appetite, you might say. But then it all comes right back up again, which does explain the state of his teeth. Then things get even weirder for me here, though, because VM Varga has this entire social theory about how, like, chaos is coming and the markets are going to crash and peasants with pitchforks are coming. And all of that is the real reason that Emmett should go along with this deal to make him a partner. 
Yeah, and whether or not Emmett buys that, I think this adds to the political dimensions of this episode. Definitely. Because you get a lot of discussion of whether or not Emmett is rich, right? Emmett feels rich. Right, he's got the big house, he's got the nice car, he's got, you know, he drives the $90,000 Hummer. Like, he's rich, right? Right. But although that is just, it's a lease, it's through, a, it's through, a the company, through the company. So, you know, but anyway, yeah, so he's pretty comfortable. He's pretty well off. But Vargas like, no, you don't have the kind of money you need to survive in this world, which, you know, brings up the 1% debate, right? Like, how rich do you need to be before you have enough money but in America? The, and it's all just so strange to me, right? He's like, Varga tells him the first step is to acquire the money. The second step is to acquire so much money that you can become invisible, which is not necessarily the uh, prevailing American idea regarding what to do with a lot of money. Right? There's this weird social theory thing happening here. But to become invisible just made me think of Gloria Burgle again and how she's like invisible to all these things. So like has she somehow achieved this invisibility without money? I I don't know. You can't drop invisible in a show with a character who is invisible to technology and not have some kind of parallel there. So I'm curious. Yes, she's the truly uh, wealthy one, perhaps, in this world. Maybe. Uh, Anyway, yeah, so VM reveals uh, also that he knows about the Stussy feud. He lets Emmett know that he knows all about what's going on with Ray. And, of course, where did VM Varg learn about this? On On Facebook. Facebook. They're really punching that Facebook button this season. This is a moment where the episode really takes a turn, though, because Emmett starts to realize, like, Varga hasn't just taken control of his business. He is taking control of his whole life. He knows everything, absolutely everything. And he is starting to pull the strings in many different ways. Although this does, I feel like, validate kind of my feeling earlier a couple of episodes ago when I felt like when Varga was dangling all this money in front of Emmett, there was almost a little gleam in Emmett's eye, like, oh, maybe that'll work out. And I think by the end of this conversation with Varga in Eden Prairie, Emmett seems like he might be ready to sign that partnership agreement and start playing uh, billionaire games with Varga. Maybe. He's going to have to convince Sai, though. And Sai is having a little trouble of his own at this point. When Sai, uh, after taunting Ray, goes back to the office, Winnie Lopez, our trusty St. Cloud cop, is waiting for him. This is the last place that Sai wants to be seen with a cop. Yuri and Mimo are in the lobby of the office. They are Varga's enforcers. They've been told explicitly not to go to the police. So when they see Winnie sitting there, oh, that moment was so tense. Poor Sai's like, well, nobody nobody asked for this. Nobody called you. Yeah, Sai makes Jerry Lundgaard look cool, calm, and collected right, in this, this is scene. A total callback to when Jerry's like panicking under pressure in the original film. Sai is even worse, as Winnie's trying to track down just some details about a hit and run, which is what happened when Cy crushed Ray's Corvette in the diner parking lot. Apparently, he also hit uh, somebody's wagon on the way out and left the scene. And so that makes it this hit and run that Winnie is investigating. And Cy can't get her out of the office fast enough. Yeah, we learn Ray doesn't want to press charges, but oh, that waitress who had just finished paying off her wagon, she is hopping mad and wants to know who was in that Hummer that clipped her. So Winnie then goes to pay a visit to her new friend, Gloria Burkle, who's initially a little put out to see this extremely enthusiastic fellow cop show up late at night, but is a little bit more interested when she learned that Winnie has started to connect some dots between Stussy and Stussy and Stussy and Eden and Eden. That's right. So we're starting, the confusion is starting to clear up here. And you sense a, a bond forming between Winnie and Gloria here. I feel like they may be kind of like a, 
a duo as we move forward. And in case you had any doubt that things are really starting to heat up here, the kettle goes off in the background. Cards are, uh, as we might say, on the table, even if they're not sponsored. We are here with Rachel Tenner, the casting director of Fargo. She has actually cast all three seasons of the show, and we are delighted to have her here and get a glimpse behind the scenes. All right, Rachel, so you worked on the original Fargo, and now you've cast all three seasons of the Fargo television show. What was the difference there when you started working in TV? Well, first of all, I want to clarify my involvement in the Fargo movie, because that was when I was first in got into casting. I was an intern at a casting agency in Chicago, and we started working on Fargo. So I had a chance to kind of do some of the location casting in Chicago, and we would drive up to Minnesota and, you know, have callbacks with Joel and Ethan. And so it was just kind of getting a feel of that world very early you know, obviously I was familiar with their work and everything, but we had done Hudsucker Proxy. My office in Chicago had also done Hudsucker Proxy, the office I was working in. And so I started kind of getting the vibe of what this world is that Joel and Ethan create and what they're like as people. Then when I came to L.A., I ended up working with Ellen Chenoweth and worked on like five more of their movies. And by that time, you're so immersed in that world, you know, for of Joel and Ethan. Like you absolutely have such a sense of their tone and you understand like what they're going to be looking for. You know, you can see per- a person's face and be like, Oh my God, Joel and Ethan would love that face. You know what I mean? Or you'll see, like you'll see something specific and you know that that could exist in their world. So, you know, you kind of get, you just kind of click into it, hopefully. And, um, and so by the time when Fargo, the television show came around and they asked me to come interview I read the script, and I just, you know, Noah did, like, such an amazing job of kind of individuating from the movie, but at the same time really, like, taking that tone and that world and, you know, bringing it to television. He's an amazing writer, so that's kind of, like, the number one thing in all of it. And so um, once we did that, it was kind of the same thing. You know, we didn't really cast it for television, whatever that would mean, I guess, but... You know, it wasn't like network, so we didn't have to worry necessarily about people being a certain look or a certain type. You know, I think a lot of the hurdle for the first season was just getting people, especially when you want namey people to come into it, to get them to jump into this. Because, you know, obviously Fargo is so iconic. And, you know, I think actors are a little reticent to kind of jump in and be like, oh, here's my version of it, you know. So, but the writing was just great and it did what it needed to do it got the people you know to come on board and and then we were able to shape this world just like we did when you know when you're working on a Coen brother movie so you've used the word vibe could you say a little bit more about that vibe about what it is specifically that you look for someone uh, when casting generally a Coen brothers project and specifically fargo either the movie or the tv show i think you're always looking for something a little out of the box i guess is the best way to describe it you know, it's always great actors, certainly, and, and people who are, you know, who do great performances and are real. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are great at bringing that to life. But, you know, the vibe is kind of always just like somebody who's just a little off-center is probably the best way to describe it. You know, they're just like not the norm. Maybe they're a little bit more character-looking. They approach the material in a certain way that might be different from others. But I think that's kind of more the, their world, I'd say, than others. You know, not every project wants that same kind of person or vibe. 
Have you had a favorite season so far to cast? I know I'm asking you to play a little bit of favorites there. Well, I have to say I loved season one. I felt like that first time of bringing this whole thing to life was, you know, obviously super exciting and jumping in and finding all those fun people in both Canada and in the States was uh, was great. Oh, man, wait, which, I don't know. You know, season two was really huge and was challenging, but was, oh, that one was a lot of fun, too. That had a lot more types to look for. And, you know, this season was a really interesting one because this was a lot of, you know, Noah calling me and being like, hey, you know who would be great for this role blank? Or I'd call him and be like, oh, you know who I was thinking about for, you know, this role? And then we'd be like, oh, no, that's great. And then we would just, like, kind of push that forward. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was a lot more of just getting, you basically got to think of, like, your favorite actor and then put him in the show. So one of the most tension-grabbing bits of casting this season has been you and McGregor and you and McGregor as the Stussy right. brothers. Did you always know that both those brothers would be played by the same actor? And how did yes. you find someone who that could do both? That was something Noah wanted to do from the beginning. So, yeah, casting someone who can play two roles off each other, what do you look for for that? For Ewan's role, we knew we wanted somebody namey, and we just worked on lists. You know, it's when lists is basically when you sit down and you think in your brain, like, who is the best person for this role? And you start making these lists and you start going over them with your showrunner and your producers and the network and the studio. And certainly you kind of hone in and get down to your final groups and then just kind of explore from that. But Ewan, obviously, I mean, you know, he's Ewan McGregor. <laughs> it's like you knew he could do it. And he's great. And he, um, you know, he has that awesome vulnerability that he brings to both roles that makes it very unique and very special, I think. Do you have to think about accents at all when you're casting? Or do you just trust that they will be able to pick up this Minnesota sound that has become the trademark of the show? Well, I think, you know, people work with dialect coaches, for, certainly. Right. But I think you have to be sensitive to it because there are some actors, like if you're getting someone from another country that can't, who haven't done an American at all, that might be something where you're like, okay, wait a minute, how much time do we need to give somebody to really prepare for this who hasn't done an American at all? I think you have to be aware of it. I don't think it has to always preclude somebody, but it is something you should be sensitive to. You know, or if somebody's an actor and the agent might tell you he doesn't have an ear for accents or something like that, then you need to know that. Well, it seems like Fargo would be a super fun show to cast because there are so many supporting cast members who make a very strong impression and are clearly written to be characters right. who don't just disappear, but really make an impression even if they have just a little screen time. Right. And I think that's what people learn from over the seasons is even though... You might not be in all the episodes, or you might not be considered the leads or the series regulars. Your roles can still be big in their own way. That makes it a lot of fun to cast. People are more open to coming on board in those roles than other projects. Are there roles on Fargo where the casting has then kind of changed the character? Like, you thought it was going to go one way, and then the actor you, that you ended up picking with Noah Hawley just changed the performance or changed it all together? Yeah. You know, like Bokeem Woodbine, the season before, that was a direction that we went midway. I think we were auditioning people and then, you know, um, we kind of changed the direction on that role and found Bokeem. And now it's kind of hard to imagine that it would have been anybody else. So you have now over two decades of experience in film and TV casting. So you've seen a lot of actors' careers rise, fall, come and go. 
Can you ever tell when someone is in really a sort of a star-making performance? Are you ever surprised when someone puts in an amazing performance and then their career just doesn't take off after that? Yeah, no, of course, of course. Like, you always have expectations when you see something that somebody's going to go a certain direction. And, you know, this business is so, I don't know, unpredictable, I guess is the word where some people's trajectory goes opposite of what you think in one way or another. It's very subjective, and it's also just getting these opportunities to come and shine and do what you can do. But I do think you sometimes meet actors, and you can, you can walk away and be like, oh, no, that person's a movie star. But they just have this quality about their acting and their person that you can just tell that there's like a depth to them that will make them they're going to be movie stars. So to change the subject a bit, I was wondering if you have any favorite memories of working with the Coen brothers in Minnesota, specifically on the original Fargo. You know, the original Fargo is the first time I met them. So memory most burned into my brain was their laugh, which is very unique. And they do at this, you know, together. <laughs> it's, it's pretty, um, it definitely makes an impression and a lasting memory. But, you know, they're so kind. They're just, they're great people. They're so kind. They're funny. And the sessions are always, you know, a good time. I mean, actually, my biggest experience was I was on location the whole time for A Serious Man that we did all in Minnesota, and we found all Minnesota actors for except for, like, four roles. I mean, literally, I was, it's you know, in synagogues on the weekend and, you know, trying to meet people. And, you know, we did so much casting there and using the community, and it was amazing. It's one of, I think if you talk to a lot of people on that movie from the Cone like family, like everyone would say that that was one of their best experiences ever. We were in Minnesota for like, God, months and months and months. But like on True Grit, I went through the South for three months and had 10 open calls in 10 different cities and met 5,000 girls you know, and Ellen was kind of like heading the whole thing in New York. So between her, all the people she saw, we probably saw 10,000 girls for the lead role of True Grit. So there's a lot of times you have to go out beyond just the acting communities. Okay, if you're casting your Fargo fantasy team here, people that you'd love to see, that you'd love to drop into this kind of crazy, frozen, murderous world. You know, there's one person that we had talked about, we just haven't been able to kind of like find a home for him. But I think Albert Brooks would be really fun in this world some at one place or another. That sounds about right. Being from Minnesota, I can totally see Albert Brooks being a Minnesotan. Yeah, that's an idea I always think is pretty fascinating and would be exciting to see. When you're kind of moving the people around and putting the pieces together, what what is that like? Oh, I think people just don't uh, know about the amount of work and the amount of minutia that goes into casting in general. You know, you're constantly, you're not only fielding a million calls and submissions, and then you're auditioning all day, but then you also have to, like, you know, if you're auditioning all day, then you can't be handling all your business aspect of it. So then you have to do the business part after the auditioning, and you can work some very late hours. And, you know, there's a time crunch, you know. Come hell or high water, you're shooting on a certain day, so you got to get it done one way or another. So there's always that little looming deadline above your, over your head. But I'm sure a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of people's jobs have that. But I think people don't realize how many, like the volume of actors and the, and the amount of work that has to go into doing a show. What I love about Fargo is it shows this different side of actors that we are familiar with. So like right. we got to see Ted Danson last season kind of playing this like, 
more nuanced, uh, subtle character a little bit. And then we get this um, very unattractive side of Ewan McGregor in season three. Like, what part of you is like, oh, yeah, we're going to cast them, but we're going to push them into places that you don't expect? Well, that's the most exciting part of it. Absolutely. It's to take somebody who people consider one way or another, you know, think of one way or another, and then getting to put them in something where they get to do something completely different. I think that's the exciting part of casting. I think that's probably the exciting part of acting as well, you know, getting to show this other side to you, because they all, as you can tell, everybody has it in them. Are there any specific moments that come to you from across the three seasons where you watched it either during the shooting or after, and you just see an element come out in a performance or a moment happen, you're just like, yes, this is just what I hoped and dreamed when we made this person in this role? Oh, my God. All of it. I think there is not... I know that sounds like I can't say that about my own work, but I don't think that there is a misstep in Fargo so far. I love everybody's performances. I think everybody achieves exactly what I hoped they would, if not more. I used to call it, like in films, I used to call it like the Soderbergh effect. I remember when Steven Soderbergh would always work with these actors that, you know, you always knew one way or another, from like a certain way, and then he'd work with them and they would give like the best performances of their lives. You know, it's been, I called it like the Soderbergh effect. But I feel like Noah has that effect for talent on Fargo. He gives them roles and writing that is unique and special and lets them shine. I think it's kind of amazing. Like, and I always love the arcs of people. Season one, I love watching Martin Freeman's arc of who he was and what he turned into. I thought that was so fascinating and he was amazing. And same with Kirsten Dunst. Like, I loved watching her whole the way her character, you know, somewhat implodes, you know, over the season. It's just, it's like amazing work. It is. It's fabulous. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for spending time and explaining to us how this works. We've been watching your work for three seasons now, and it is just, it's amazing what you've done and how you've put these casts together. Oh, I appreciate it. I hope any of this made sense. (laughs) It was great. It was great. Thanks so much. And we're looking forward to seeing the rest of what season three has in store for us. Yeah, I'm excited for you to watch too. Exactly. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah. Bye. 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 Bajis is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Anna Reed. Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Follow us on Twitter at Bajis Podcast, A-W-J-E-E-Z Podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, please go on iTunes, rate and review us. It helps other people find the show and grow our network of people who can tell us what we missed. Thanks so much. Okay, then. Bye now. <laughs>